you were a manager, you, you left that role to do YouTube full time. Tell me about that process. It got to a point where I was making more money through YouTube and consulting than I was in my full-time job. Um, like right now, you're paying me, what, 20,000? What did we so, agree? Something like 20,000 <laughs> rubles, something, something. Right, 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 okay, yeah. You had said that you didn't actually really enjoy being a manager that much. Uh, I had a very similar experience. I, I realized, I was like, maybe my plan that I had for the past three years, which is now playing out, isn't the best plan for me, even though that's what I had been striving for. You know, over time, I become a, a little bit jaded about content in general. Why don't I be different? Why don't I try to tell the stories that I think are really important and that I want to get out there? And yeah, maybe they won't get as many views, but I'll make better content because I'm excited about it. I've had this like epiphany a while back where I was like, I just, I like building things and growing things from scratch and like making it successful. I don't know why. I just, I don't like reveling in success and building on my success for whatever reason. I don't know if that's a good thing, but I really like starting over and trying new things and sparking it. And so creatively, I didn't know I needed that, but I did. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Ken's Nearest Neighbors, the podcast where I bring in fascinating people from my world, talk about life, data science, sports analytics, content creation, and much, much more. I'm your host, Ken G. If you haven't already, we'd greatly appreciate it if you gave us a rating and followed the show. It helps us to continue to bring in incredible guests. This episode of Ken's Nearest Neighbors is powered by Z by HP, HP's high compute, workstation grade, line of products and solutions. Today, I had the pleasure of interviewing my good friend, Alex Freeberg, otherwise known as Alex the Analyst. So Alex just passed the 500,000 subscriber threshold on YouTube, providing really great insights around data analysis, SQL, and everything of the data sort on his YouTube channel. He also is a prolific LinkedIn presence, bringing comedy and great insights to the platform there. Today, we're talking about how and why Alex left his job as an analytics manager. We're also touching on his new platform, the Analyst Builder, that's coming out in a couple months. And we finally end with his real perspective and take on the prevalence of AI and how it'll change the analyst role. Hope you tune in and you really enjoy this episode. It's always a pleasure to talk with Alex. Alex, welcome back to the Ken's Nearest Neighbors podcast. It's been, it's been too long. It has been too long. Thanks for having me back. I didn't think I'd be invited back after the last one, but I'm glad I'm invited back. <laughs> the last one was a great episode. We had you and Luke. We duked it out for the title of the greatest uh, data analyst on YouTube. Um, and uh, I, I'm just happy we could do another one-on-one -on -one because you always have such a, a great perspective and, and interesting stories to tell. So uh, again, welcome back on the show. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. So... I wanted to start, can I still call you Alex the Analyst now that you have left your analyst job? This seems like <laughs> a, a similar Seattle data guy who doesn't live in Seattle thing anymore. <laughs> yeah, no, you, you absolutely can. I, I still do data analyst related work and my whole YouTube channel is dedicated to data analysis. Uh, and so I definitely still think I would call myself Alex the Analyst. I have... You know, I've thought about like the future of the channel. I could consider maybe in the future if, um, because my skills have broadened so much over the past 
three years even since I started this channel where I was very data analyst focused when I first started. But my skills are what I would consider as far beyond just data analysis now. I, I think I do a lot of data engineering, some parts of data science, data architecture, web dev, um, like full stack engineer. Like I do a little bit of everything now, although it's mostly focused on analytics. I've just, my skills have changed so much. So I don't know if I'll only always focus on data analyst stuff. I still plan on for the next maybe year or two, but I can see myself in the future maybe expanding that and then just doing like Alex Freeberg or something lame, like just using your name. Yeah, why only uh, losers do that? <laughs> yeah, I know. So like I've considered it, but as for now, no, I think it, I think it is very fitting. So did you pick up most of those skills from YouTube and content or were those things you were doing at work? What did that look like? Where did you acquire all that info information? A, l- a little of both. Um, I would say some of the, a, a lot of the data engineering and data science stuff I picked up on the job. So my last job, I was working on a data science team. I was working very heavily with data engineering. That was like, I was like, like this with them. And at one point, I had the opportunity or the chance to become a data engineer and work underneath them as a junior data engineer. And I was like, I wanted to go more the managerial path, which then I became a, a, an analytics manager. Um, but I learned so much data engineering from working with data engineers, database developers, and data architects about that whole, everything in, involved in that. And so I learned a lot of hands-on with data engineering there. Um, and then as well with data science, I was working with data scientists as well. And again, similar story is I did really well with that and they wanted to bring me on as a data scientist. And I said no to that as well um, because I it, I just didn't, no offense, it was not my thing. Like I didn't love it as much as I loved data analysis. And so I was like, no, I was like, if anything, I was going to go move towards data engineering because I really liked that building aspect of it, the automation, like that stuff really hits like all the notes of things that I enjoy. And so um, I picked up a lot of stuff like that um, through work and then a little bit afterwards. So like right now we've been building Analyst Builder and through that, I've learned a lot of these other skills like, um, you know, creating APIs um, how these APIs interact with each other and why they're important. Um, building an infrastructure for a database and, sca- and making that at scale, um, which I just posted about on LinkedIn this morning. I was like, you know, we didn't, I didn't anticipate it being the beta launch being that big for, for Analyst Builder. And now it is really big. And so we're like, we have to scale our infrastructure up higher. So I'm learning all about these things. Um, and I have been for the past year. And so... A lot of these things I've just learned through building and doing and being hands-on. Like that's my, that's how I learn at least. And so, um, yeah, I would say half, half has been like in my actual job, half has been like after the fact, just kind of building and working with different companies and building my own thing. Well, it sounds like, you know, half was at companies, half was on your own building yourself, but almost a hundred percent was through building things rather than yes. through, oh, I want to learn this. I'm going to pick up a textbook. I'm going to watch these YouTube videos. <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I, I'm very much yeah. in the same boat. That's a, yeah, that's an interesting, I, you know, I consider myself a very hands-on person. Like I, I, when I was a manager, I didn't enjoy it as much because I didn't get to build things. I just got to tell people what to build and reviewed their code and stuff like that. And it, it definitely was not like, didn't fit 100% with what I love to do. And so I have always found that 
especially when I first started out, I was a course person. Like I took thousands of courses. And then once I picked it up, I was like, okay, now that I got the basics, let me try to implement it. And that's how I, where I, I feel like I really solidified my skills. Um, and so when I got into the real workplace and for the past three or four, five years now, I'm like, I just learned by building because I already have the fundamentals. I already know kind of what it's supposed to do. I understand Python really well. I understand SQL and databases and all these other things. So I can, I can kind of go into any, anything that I want to build and figure it out. Um, whether that's using things like ChatGPT or, uh, you know, um, relying on others who've already built these things and just asking them, Hey, what do you recommend how to do this or scale this or, you know, create this. And I just learn from other people and build like building is definitely, uh, building these projects is definitely like the biggest thing that's helped me learn quickly. Yeah. I, I like that so much. And uh, you know, the, the idea of a foundation is something that has been, I've been hearing that a lot recently, especially with ChatGPT and some of these tools. Yeah, you think we're talking about building? In theory, if you are thinking about a office building or any of those types of things, a house, they do need a foundation as well, and that's the work that goes on. That's that's not seen, right? It's underneath the surface. It's in the ground, Uh, and a solid foundation means that you can build larger buildings more impressive infrastructure on top of it. And I, I think that you can start building uh, before you have a, like a super solid foundation, but you just have to think of it differently. It's like, okay, I can build a prefab house and I can also build this foundation. But before <laughs> I put the prefab house in the lot, I need it to be on a solid foundation. And there's some, yeah, maybe I'm extending a metaphor too far, but I think that if, if people <laughs> yeah, like are, it. if people are looking at it that way, it's like, okay, well, you know, I do need this foundation, but I don't, do I need it right now? Maybe I, I get some, some benefit of like building infrastructure. If I build this place, then I know exactly what type of foundation I need to put the house on top of. And there's still, yeah. it doesn't have to necessarily be one or the other. You can do them sort of independently and connect them when you need them. And I, I think that a lot of people, it's like, oh, it has to be so linear. We have to do this and then this. But at least for me, I found that um, you, 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 you can trudge your own path and build the foundation or, or start building in whatever order you like. Some people are just really uncomfortable building without a foundation. Other people are yeah. like, well, I just love building. I want to do that. And then I can learn the foundation as we go and, and add to it yeah. in, in that fashion. So, um, I, I do want to ask, you know, you, you, you were a manager, you, you left that role to do YouTube full time. Tell me about that process. What, what went through your head? How did you make that decision? Obviously not an easy decision to make. You have a, a large family and uh, a zoo that, <laughs> that you take care of. Uh, and I, I'm wondering, you know, like what steps did you take uh, success? What, what was your process there? So yeah, I, first off, yes, I have a large family. I have three kids, I have a wife, I have two dogs, two cats, and some fish. I didn't want all these animals, but my family wanted the animals, so we kept getting animals, right? Um, So yeah, I have a large family, and I am the sole income earner in the family. Uh, My wife, ever since the pandemic at the beginning of 2020, has been a stay-at-home mom. Um, And now the kids are starting to go to school, so she's, you know, looking to to get back into, into work, but you know, that's, I am the only person making money in my family right now. And so it's definitely a, it was a huge responsibility to make sure I did it right. Because if not, I'm the only one earning money. So like, if I went down to zero, that's really bad. Um, 
but it, the 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 actual process of it was really easy because it kind of just hit me uh, over time, right? It was just like I didn't. It was almost not. It wasn't even a tough choice at some point because it got to a point where I was making more money or about the same amount of money in through YouTube and consulting than I was in my full time job. And so when I got to that point, I was like, wait a second, I'm only dedicating, you know, 10 hours a month or maybe 15 hours a month on my side stuff. And it's making as much as my 40 hours at my full-time job. If I could dedicate all my time, 50, 60 hours a, a week to consulting and YouTube, I was like, I could make like a lot of money. And so at that point I was like, okay, I, I know I'm going to do it. I just have to kind of lay out how I'm going to do it. And so, you know, I talked with uh, my wife and, and we figured it out, and the timing and all that stuff. And then I just went for it and I haven't looked back. I would say about half of my income is consulting um, and half of my income is YouTube or YouTube related things, right? Um, whether that's posts on social media or that's making a video for someone or it's a speaking engagement. Um, like right now, you're paying me what, 20000 what did we agree? Something like 20,000 <laughs> ruples, something, something. In right, right, right. Okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but you know, I get paid for public speaking events. And so a lot of my income is very diversified, um, as well as like affiliate, uh, affiliate links after, on, on a lot of my videos. So it's all over the place. Like I get, it's a lot of different, um, things. And so now I just get to solely focus on that and create content and, and um, the, the process of it was actually, it just kind of, I was, I, I looked at it one day and I'm like, it doesn't make sense for me to stay at my full-time job anymore. Um, I have this thing and I can kind of grow that, not exponentially, but I can continue to grow it and, and use that in my business. And so it just kind of all worked together. It wasn't, it wasn't, look at them in the moment, it was a little bit tough because I'd never done anything like that before. But looking back, I'm like, that was such an obvious decision, you know? Mm -hmm. So Correct me if I'm wrong and and maybe add to this list. So some of the reasons that you left was likely more financial upside, right? If you can invest mm -hmm. the same amount of time into something that is uncapped, I would argue most full-time positions are capped in some sense. Uh, right. You know, you, you also have a little more flexibility where you could choose to spend more time with your family. You could choose to work a lot when they're not around. It seems like that's a very you know, powerful reason. Um, you also have a lot more flexibility in what you can learn and what you can put together. That also seems pretty appealing to a lot of people. And yeah. as you mentioned before, you're diversified across a lot of income streams. Would you consider, so I, I have this thing about contracting freelance work and like sort of I, I, what we, what we do is considered entrepreneurship, but I consider it like a specific category of entrepreneurship I am a firm believer that the way that we make our lives uh, outside of traditional work is more reliable than a nine to five job. Would you agree with that statement or would you disagree with that statement? I, right now where I'm at, I 100% would agree. Because um, at previous jobs, I've had times where I'm like, I don't know if I'm going to have a job next month. Because I don't know if the company, because I was working at a company that had missed some payments like for my for my sal for my monthly payment or biweekly payment. And I was like, Hey, is everything okay? And they're like, yeah, sorry. You know, we got to get paid by our, and I'm like, Whoa, I can't continue working here. Um, 
it was early on in my career and I was like, that, I can't, that's not good. So like there have been, there have been companies I've worked for where I wasn't sure if I was going to be employed the next month. Um, and that's really unsettling, especially as I became the the breadwinner of the family. Um, my wife was, when we first got married, she was making double what I was making, but slowly I became the breadwinner of the family and we became more reliant on my income. And so, yeah, now, now as like an entrepreneur and I can kind of, I, I have a lot of opportunities out there. Like I, I have some in my inbox right now that I haven't read They're They're like, Hey, let's collaborate on something. Let's build something. Let's do a post. So now I have kind of, at least with what I do, I have a lot of opportunities to do anything I want. I can turn things down. I can say, yes, I can say no. I can set my own prices. Um, and it definitely, I don't see it slowing down or going away anytime soon. And so it definitely to me feels more reliable where I'm at now. Now, I don't know if I could say that two years ago when I was at like 20,000 subscribers and very few people knew who I was. Um, but as, as my channel and, and as my brand, I guess you could call it kind of has grown, it's been a lot easier. And now it's extremely reliable where I'm not really concerned about, um, getting more work or making money to pay the bills. And so that's, it's been very freeing in that sense. This episode of Kenzeris Neighbors is brought to you by Z by HP. HP's high compute, workstation-grade line of products and solutions. Z is specifically made for high-performance data science solutions, and I personally use the ZBook Studio and the Z8 workstation. I really love that the Z workstations can come standard with Linux or WSL2, and they can be configured with the Data Science Software Stack Manager. With the Software Stack Manager, you can get right to the work of doing data science on day one without the overhead of having to completely reconfigure your new machine. Now back to our show. Yeah, I think something that something I think about a lot is what would it take for my income in a month to go to zero? I think working a full time job and, you know, unless you have investments in stocks and and other sources of income, you could get fired and you might get some severance, but <laughs> you go from making a right. good income just off a cliff. And now, yeah, if something happened, it'd probably be like this or, you know, if I stopped putting right. putting in work it, <laughs> it slowly goes down like that but to, to yeah. me that's something i'm very cognizant of is you know what is resiliency to begin with in, in my opinion resiliency is they be able is the ability to recover from a shock and a shock sure. of losing your job is like that is not something you recover from for in most circumstances yeah. i i will say full-time jobs more corporate jobs are more consistent for sure you know, you get a paycheck that is roughly the same amount every week. You know, one one right. month I might do really well, and another month uh, I might have slacked off and 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 not really get any anything coming in. I'm like, oh, I probably should have worked a little harder. But uh, you know, that that's something that is in my control. Whereas in, in other circumstances, there are a lot less things uh, that that I can purely influence. Yeah, yeah, and, and to that point. Um, when I was talking about those previous jobs, that was that's why I had to job hop. And that's actually what made me make more money in the long run anyways, um, was at these previous jobs, I really liked working there. And I did not want to leave some of those jobs. Like there was one I was working as called uh, KPN uh, Analytics. They were a great company. I loved the work I did. I loved, I saw a future there like just progressing in their company is a small company. I was like, then they wanted me to stay and they told me they were going to promote me, but 
I felt that fear of like, I cannot lose this job. Like if I lost it, like my family screwed. So like I felt that pressure to, I had to find something more stable, which brought me to the company I worked for at for three years, was a junior data analyst, data analyst, analytics manager there. And it was a global company. I felt really stable there because they were, they made a lot of money. Like that was like number four on the fortune five or number seven on the fortune 500 list. Like they're making tons of money. So I felt a lot more secure. And, um, you know, I think that if I had lost that job early on, I would have just had to take something just to make some money. And that could have like completely changed my life. So like, you know, it leads, it lead that insecurity, at least for me, led to a little bit of job hopping, which ended up really working out. But, you know, it doesn't always work out exactly like that. Um, and so, yeah, it wasn't as stable at some points in my career as it is now. Yeah, fair enough. I, I think that uh, stability and how we frame it is a unique equation for everyone. And we should probably all individually be fairly introspective about that. So, something <laughs> else that I'd love to hear about, which is sort of in that same vein, is you had said that you didn't actually really enjoy being a manager that much. Uh, I had a very similar experience where I realized personally, I'm not a very good manager, right? Like <laughs> I, I, it's just not something I like building. I don't like feeling like I'm lording over people and which is surprising. I would imagine hearing for you, <laughs> you to hear that, but um, you, you know, what was that experience like? What did you learn about yourself? What did you learn about, um, you know, that maybe you could extend onto the new ventures that you're doing? Yeah. Th yeah. That's a great question. I, I was really, really, really excited to become a manager. My career path was, and I had this like all planned out ever since I got there. I was like, I want to become a manager. I want to become like a senior manager, VP, like CTO. I'm talking like all the way up. And I was convinced I could do it. I, I think I could have done it. It would have taken a long time, like 10, 15 years, uh, but I would have gotten there. But I got in there and the first six months were great, right? I had a team of developers and analysts and I was working directly with um, the VP of, so I was in, uh, I was in uh, IT. So like I switched from healthcare into IT within the same company. So within IT, we had the VP who's over all of IT and then above him was the CTO. So he was really high up and I was working with both of them pretty directly um, because we were the analytics for every department within IT. So within IT, we had like 12 different departments. My group did all the analytics for all the departments, or, or at least help the analysts who were in those departments do their work better, you know, get everything done. So my, my team was pretty important. And it was kind of like a little power trip. I was like, dang, I'm working with these like really powerful people. I'm really early on in my career. Like, wow, I'm doing really great. And that wore off maybe after like five to six months. After that, I'm like, okay. And and they brought me on, and just so like a little bit of context, they brought me on because I was really good with cloud infrastructure. And so I had I had done really well with my helping our team migrate from on not most of it was on-prem. So some on-prem, some in the cloud migrated everything fully to the cloud. And I helped with that integration. Um, and so as an analyst, I was working directly with those database developers like we were talking about earlier, the data architects. And I was the main guy for the analyst to make sure that we had everything set up for what we needed for all of our processes. So it was pretty complex, I would say. 
And they wanted someone who had that knowledge and could bring it in and do that. So the first six months, that's all we're doing is I'm helping getting pricing for you know doing this, hiring on another um, uh, a data engineer to help migrate the data uh, from all these processes to have a kind of like a unified data infrastructure for IT, which we never had. And so really exciting project, really important, big, expensive project, like mi- millions of dollars um, into this project. And so I'm feeling like really proud of myself. I'm doing, I was doing a really good job, but then after like six months, I was like, I'm not really doing anything. Like I'm just telling people what to do. And I was like, I miss coding and I miss building. And that's where I got a lot of my, a lot of the stuff that I was doing on YouTube was kind of my outlet to actually like have fun and enjoy what I was doing. I was just making a lot of money as a manager, at least, you know, I was making much more than I had ever made in a full-time job. And I was like, I, I, this is great for my family. But then once I got into it, I was like, I don't, I, the people, I liked working with the people. So I, one of the things that I really enjoyed about being a manager was promoting people. Um, just because I was like, dude, I have power. I want to help promote people. And so almost everyone on my team got a promotion within the first year I was there. <laughs> and it was like, I, and I, I would like hassle HR to make it happen too. And my boss, like I would track them down and be like, guys, this person has been here for a year. They're doing great work. If we do not give them a raise, we're gonna have to hire somebody else what and more money. I was boss. like, guys, trust me. So I like, I got every single person on my on my team a raise, uh, or and no, not a raise, a promotion. And so everyone was like really happy with me. But again, I just personally, selfishly, I wasn't enjoying the work anymore. I was like, okay, now I'm just meeting with vendors every day and talking about pricing and laying out pricing models and talking, doing like cost you know, doing these like cost, um, what were they called? <laughs> these different models for like how much it's going to cost long-term versus short-term. Um, what was our budget say? It was, it was not, it wasn't what I enjoyed. And so near the end, I was like, when I started getting more consulting work, that's what was like really exciting me. I was like, this is exciting me and I'm making more money from it. So it was kind of became a no brainer towards the end. I was like, I don't want to do this long-term. Um, and so that, really just kind of nudged me in that direction again of just, I meant to do my own thing, build my own stuff. And I fully jumped into that because that time as a manager really like, I I realized I was like, maybe my plan that I had for the past three years, which is now playing out, isn't the best plan for me, even though that's what I had been striving for and working towards. And so I kind of just had to do this pivot um, in my career and like shift my mindset to, is this what I want to do in five, 10 years? And I was like, no, this is not what I want to do in five to 10 years. What I want to do is over there working with really unique companies and really unique, um, you know, products and building things like that's what I want to do. And so for some people, management is like their thing. They love it. And there were parts of it that I really loved, the people side. I really loved working with the people and growing my team and like getting to know them and helping them in their careers. That I loved. I just didn't like the actual work itself. And a lot of it was hiring. So I, it was we, we had a contracting team. So I was always, a contractor was always leaving for a different project. I had to get a new contractor. I hated that. Um, and so, Now you're the contractor. Yeah, just... Was that? And now no, you're I'm, the yeah, exactly. Now I'm the contractor. Um, and so, yeah, it's just, there were parts of it that I liked, but I would say more than 50% of it, I was just, after like six months, I was like, I don't mind it, but this is not what I want to do 
long term. And that's what my boss did even more so. And that's what his boss did even more so. And I'm like, oh gosh, it's all just pricing. And there's no, it's just, it's it's strategy and talking about pricing. That, that was like 80% of the hands-on work I did. And it was, again, it was just not for me. So I'm, all that to say, you know, that was my experience as, as a manager. <laughs> well, it, it's very interesting. I, I find more and more the higher up you go in organizations from personal experience, from talking to people, at least for me, the less skilled the work becomes. So you go yeah. up one level, you're just sitting in meetings, you're talking about pricing, and you're, at least for me, I was writing a lot of tickets for what people should be doing, and, you know, like <laughs> yeah. your tickets and those yeah. types of things. You go up another level, you're sitting in even more meetings, and you're just talking about stuff. You're not really doing anything. Yeah. And you do less and less the higher up you go. I mean, like <laughs> you, you have more and more responsibility. But yeah. then again, a lot of people at the top, like, push responsibility down. It's like, oh, there was this random, it was Alex's fault that this didn't work, not my fault. It couldn't possibly. <laughs> and then that's obviously the complete opposite way a company should be run. But yeah. what's how companies should be run and what they're actually and, and the way that they're actually run are, are quite different. Um, so <laughs> that is true. I, I want to ask a little bit about the consulting as well. So like what type of consulting are you doing? How are you getting your clients? What does that even look like? Yeah. Uh, so consulting has been really, it's, I've been doing it for the past almost a little over two years now. Um, so this started, I started getting like every so often I get someone who'd be like, Hey, I saw your channel on YouTube and we have a similar problem and we are wondering if you can help. And I was like, yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> 500 bucks. Hello. I was like, like any amount of money two years ago to me was like gold. And so I would just get it through, they would send me an email. Um, and then it became LinkedIn. I got a lot of messages through LinkedIn. I have not, and this is very different. So I don't think this is normal, but I have never reached out to get consulting work. I've only had people reach out to me. Even now I just looked at my inbox this morning. I had someone new reach out to me asking to do something. Um, and I get something, I get several of those per week. And so it's been really just an amazing blessing. Like I've just been incredibly blessed to not have to hustle and grind and work to get clients. Now the actual work itself has been very varied. Um, some want me to do like more YouTube stuff. They want me to make a video for them. They want me to come in and train their team on how to use AWS or train them how to use Azure or SQL or something like that, where they've been using Microsoft Access or um, Excel and they want to update their infrastructure. Or it's more hands-on, uh, that can be hands-on, but or it's more technical where they're like, hey, we want to go from on-prem to cloud. Um, you know, do you know how to do that? I'm like, you're talking to the right guy. I did that for two different organizations and helped with that whole thing. And I know all the pricing stuff and I know the vendors and, you know, like I still have connections to my old work where I reach out to them I'm like, hey, remember me? Uh, we did this at this company. I'm with I'm working with a new company, you know. Uh, can you come and give us a pitch and show us uh, how your product would be good? And so those connections have been helpful. But sometimes it's more like implementation of, you know, build how to build dashboards in Power BI and how to um, allow people access and how to set everything up. And so I'm implementing things. And then some things have been more high level. So they come in and they're like, we are going to market and it's a startup in like Silicon Valley. This has been like a lot of companies um, for this 
type of thing. Or they're like, hey, we're going to market. It's an analytic company. It's a, uh, it's a, um, oh, what is the other, the, the other one I'm thinking of? It's a connecting to data. I can't think of the word for it. It's escaping me. Where we're connecting the data, you don't have to migrate your data. We're just connecting to it and you can query it. Those types of companies. And they're like, you know, we want to target data analysts specifically. We want data analysts to use our product. And I'm like, okay, show me how, what your marketing strategy is. Show me what your demographics are. Show me how you're marketing this to um, managers or companies. And they'll show me it to me and I'll be like, oh, okay. As a manager at this company, when we would work with your exact type of company, I would not want to see that. That's, that's a red flag to me. And I would show them, here's what I would do. And I consult and kind of show them some marketing strategies um, that I found really successful and that I've now I've now I have some experience with the consulting side. And I'm like, these have worked really well. And I've gotten some some feedback and data back from these other companies. And they're like, you know, your feedback in this was really helpful. You know, we really appreciate that. So all that to say, it's been very all over the place. Um what I, I, and I enjoy all of it, which is great. Like I, I, get, I enjoy every part of it. And so I get to now pick and choose. Like I just get to go into my inbox um, when I'm, I'm ready to pick up another project and I shoot them an email or shoot two or three an email. I'm like, Hey, give me some more details on this. Um, you know, I think I have some, I think I can help with this. And then whatever ones, you know, uh, come through for who I reach out to, those are the projects I pick up. Um, and so that's, that's been my consulting experience. Um, I don't know how much how much detail you want me to go in further than that, but that's kind of like high level what I've been working on with consulting. No, that, that was really good. I, I think that that was quite informative. You know, you, you'd mentioned that you didn't have to hustle and grind to get consulting clients and do those types of things. I would argue that you really, you sort of did by hustling and grinding and putting out a lot of content, telling stories online, making a LinkedIn presence, doing yes. all those things. It's, in my opinion a more efficient way of marketing it's slower slower progression like you're not going to get clients right away when you start a youtube channel and you start posting on linkedin but over time you completely invert the equation where you spend as you mentioned zero time marketing now and you have this this network of people coming to you whereas if someone was just selling hard the whole time yes they probably have a network of referrals if they're doing really good work but they wouldn't be getting one to two messages a box that are in uh, messages a week that are inbound. They'd be still having to hustle right. and go. And I, I love the idea of setting it and forgetting it where you build infrastructure, yeah. you build something good, you create a brand and then it serves you for the rest of your life. That sounds way, way better. Even if it's a slower, a slower trek up the mountain <laughs> to me. <laughs> yeah, no, you're, you're, you are 100% correct. I, I think I was talking. I guess in my mind, I was talking more about like reaching out to clients, talking to clients, convincing them that I can do the work, which I think a lot of consultants have to do. Um, and I've been getting more questions about consulting lately um, as I've kind of shifted more of my business to that. And so I get a lot more people asking about it. And I always tell them, I'm like, I'm not the perfect person to ask because most people have to like really go out there, and I don't know all the strategies to that because I haven't had to do it. I haven't been under that pressure where I have to do it. So you're right though, like my YouTube stuff and my LinkedIn stuff and Twitter and like all these things that I post, I've been posting on for over three years now, now is like really paying off dividends. Like 10 times, tenfold the work that I put in has been given back to me. And so you're you're absolutely right. I definitely put in work. It's just, 
Um, on this consulting aspect specifically, it definitely, um, you know, I feel very fortunate. It was kind of like serendipitous. I feel very fortunate that I don't have to do the stuff that other people may have to do. That that makes a ton of sense. So tell me about LinkedIn. It seems very sure. much like you've you, you understand that platform well. You enjoy posting there. <laughs> you were an overnight success yeah. on LinkedIn, correct? <laughs> uh, n- no, I don't think I don't think so. <laughs> LinkedIn was very much like YouTube. Um, LinkedIn is a very interesting place. You have to be professional, but people also like humor. But you know, if you just post helpful stuff, some people like it, some people don't. So I I have found um, just through a lot of testing, like I posted all types of content, everything you can imagine in analytics, I've done it. Um, the ones that I think are the most successful, um, especially recently in the past several months that I've been doing, are I do satirical posts, so things that make people laugh and share. Um, so I love satire. I always have. That's definitely my humor style. Um, and so satire works really well. Controversial things work really well as well. Um, really well as well also. I don't even want to say that. It, you know, controversial things I think always – make people, it's like a call to action. It's like, I have to take up my side. So I like controversial things. And then genuinely helpful things. I think I've been doing more helpful things than not lately. Um, And so, you know, posting like, here are my thoughts on, you know, AI in the data space and how it's going to drive, you know, hiring in the future. Because it's something that people genuinely are concerned about and thinking about. And these are things that I have a lot of thoughts on. And I've, you know, feel like I've, I have a pretty good, um, pretty good feeling for. And so I share those things. And again, some of those things are controversial too, but then I find, I think that it is still very helpful. Um, And so, yeah, LinkedIn has been kind of that underdog story. I think I'm, I'm hitting on like 250,000 on LinkedIn, which is insane to think about. I don't really look at numbers anymore. Um, I used to be really obsessed with the data. It's surprising. I used to be really obsessed with the data and like checked it all the time, looked at my analytics, looked at watch time and all these things. Now that I've kind of gotten into a comfortable groove, um, I kind of already mentally know what works, what doesn't work and where I'm at, like just as a, a ballpark. I'm like, I think I'm over 250 on my YouTube channel or, or five, 550 or something. So like mentally, I'm just like, I look at like groupings. As you get high, as, I, as I've gotten higher, at least I'm like, once I hit 500, that was like my big milestone. And I'm like, okay, I don't think I need to keep counting anymore. Like each individual thousand, same thing on LinkedIn. As I got over like 150, which like was crazy. Now I'm like 25,000 more people is an insane amount of people. But compared to the already group I have, it just, it doesn't like register like it used to. It doesn't hit like it used to. Now it's kind of like, wow, this just, that's great. That's a lot of, it's more people who hear my, hear what I have to say. And I don't know, I become a little desensitized to the actual number. I still very much care about the people who I'm impacting. Um, I still very much care about what I'm putting out there because I, I know I have some, some sway or some influence in the space. So I'm very careful what I, I very much care just not about the specific number. I don't care about that as much anymore. Yeah, I, I I completely agree with you there. I sort of, it's about the messaging and what you put out and the stories yeah. you're telling and the value you're creating. If you're doing those things, I think overall the numbers take care of themselves. It is yeah. always a little weird to think about it perspective-wise though. 
So, you know, mm-hmm. 500,000, whatever it might be. It's like five football stadiums worth of <laughs> like fully packed yeah. largest football stadiums in the world of people. Like, wow, they're, <laughs> they're all there to watch you, Alex. So, <laughs> right. Um, yeah. It's pretty weird. Yeah, it, it is. It is pretty it's surreal in some sense, too. I, I am interested in what you, so you said LinkedIn, for example, it's a very interesting place. (laughs) Do you think it's a good place or do you think it's, uh, you know, something other than that? Because I I have very mixed feelings about LinkedIn. I think a lot of people go just to posture and say, Hey, look at all the cool stuff I've been (laughs) doing and look at this promotion I got. And if you want to be like me, if you want to make six figures in four minutes, do xyz <laughs> and you right. know it's it's just weird that you, they've created this professional place but every day it seems like it's becoming more and more like instagram like instagram that's <laughs> what you go you expect that but on linkedin yes. it's sort of like man like <laughs> well okay i have a i have i have a pretty i think an interesting thing to say on this because this is not the first time this has come up my take on it is is that if most people are out there posturing and trying to sell you something, and it's always a show. I feel like the content that I put out is a breath of fresh air Yeah, most of the time. I try to be that breath of fresh air for somebody because you're right. There is, a, I would possibly say, even a majority of people who just go on LinkedIn to show their accomplishments. It's, here's my highlights. You know, it, it, like you said, it's like Instagram. I think there are a small community of people who really make it LinkedIn great. And I try to be part of that community that's like really trying to make LinkedIn what it should be and what it can be um, and make fun of people and really push them down and make them feel bad about themselves for the people who don't make it as fun. I think that's my responsibility as, you know, uh, who I am. And so um, I do. there are times where I'll, po- I'll, I'll comment on you know, things and I'll say like something really sarcastic or just really funny just to like let them know that I'm like, come on, like you don't need to post that. And you don't get hundreds of upvotes and it makes me really happy. Um, and so I, I think that, yes, there is a majority of people on LinkedIn who mostly you and that's because the majority of people aren't like you and I. The majority of people are just like regular people working a job and they want to use it as networking. So they show their accomplishments to help them get jobs which is not a bad thing. Um, But LinkedIn, I think it it can be a lot more than that, where you also are very uplifting, encouraging, helpful to people who are below or not as far in their career as you. And so I think it can be that and even more so. And I try to surround myself with that kind of content as well. Like if I see people posting stuff I don't, I I get rid of it. I I say, don't show me this person's content anymore. So you can curate it. but yeah, LinkedIn is LinkedIn is its own beast. I just try to make LinkedIn a little bit better when I'm on it. <laughs> I like that perspective is, you know, it's not about the consumption. It's about what you can bring to the platform. I think yeah. one of my biggest challenges with LinkedIn is, and I see this across all content. At YouTube, it's particularly prevalent. But for example, you make a satirical post. I One you made a while ago really like gave me a chuckle. I think it was about you interviewed a guy and then you didn't hire him, but he was a great guy, whatever it might be, something. <laughs> right. Um, right. I obviously didn't do justice to the story. It was a lot funnier when Alex told <laughs> yeah. it or wrote it, but, and then you see a whole like host of posts that are 
trying to do virtually the same thing, but yeah. you know, like a little bit different. And to me on LinkedIn, that's all I see is that like someone innovates and right. then it's just all copycat content. And I see it on right. YouTube too, but on YouTube, people actually have to get a video camera out, stand in front yes. of it, make the video. You know, you, you can't make the video too similar if you're doing that or else you're going to get roasted. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that that is a function of a lot of social media. I think that's how you succeed on social media to a certain extent. Like, I don't think Mr. Beast is doing that, but I think that people like the copycats of Mr. Beast have 20 million subscribers also. And it's like, yeah, it's, it's kind of sad to me that that's how content works. Um, and I, for me on LinkedIn, that is where I see it most prevalent because it's so much easier to do copycat with iteration on text. And I, I don't know, maybe yeah. that's just like a, yeah, like I, I've done some of that I usually, but <laughs> I'll try to take it from a domain that's not ours, right? Like, yeah. uh, and, and I'm pretty transparent about this. You know, Forrest Knight's a, a good friend of mine. You've met him. He's, he's a great guy. He'll make some stuff yeah. about software engineering. And I'll be like, hey, Forrest, like, I'm going to make this similar concept about data science. Are you cool with that? Yeah. Like, I'll tag your video. That to me is different than being like, oh, Tina made this video. I'm going to make the same video, same title, same thumbnail <laughs> right. and, and throw it out there. And I'm like... That's not skill. Yeah, that's it, not creative. That's it is. It is very different where you're applying a concept to your content rather than the exact content to your content. It's, it's very different. Yeah, I, I watched a video today. It's like oh, the dark way of getting successful on YouTube, and basically the guy's <laughs> like, yeah, you just download the transcript, you put it into ChatGPT, you make bullets from it, and then you have ChatGPT write it again from the bullets. And right. I'm like, dude, that's <laughs> that's not cool. That's you took someone else's yeah. hard work that they uh, and he's like, yeah, you have to do something different when you tell the story. But it's like the hard work for me, or like the fun work, is coming up with the concepts and thinking about, oh, how do I connect this? What examples can I use? How do I how do I tell that story? And uh, yeah. you know, over time, I become a little bit jaded about content in general. But I've also found <laughs> that I, right now I'm having a ton of fun making content because right. I realized that about it. And I'm like, well, why don't I be different? Why don't I try to tell the stories that I think are really important and that I want to get yeah. out there? And yeah, maybe they won't get as many views, but I'll make better content because I'm excited about it. So yeah, it's one of those things. <laughs> no, I, I totally get that. I definitely have gone through like some slumps with content. I, I went through a slump not even three months ago, I was talking to you about it. I literally told you, I was like, I was like, I really was lacking creatively. I was like, I was just, just hustling and grinding with analyst builder stuff. And then also trying to do YouTube and do consulting and do this. And I was like, I would just hit a wall. I was like, I need something like really spark that creativity again and just do something different. And so I started doing uh, TikTok, which I, I said I would never do, but I literally had hundreds of people tell me, Alex, you have to create a TikTok. You people talk about you all the time over there. You would be a huge hit. And I was like, I was like, you know what? I just think I need something different. So I'm going to try it because creatively I need this. Um, and so I started making them and I've really enjoyed them. I've really enjoyed them. And it's it's kind of that starting fresh thing again, where I'm like, I'm starting fresh on a new platform where I get to be the noob <laughs> and be the loser who doesn't know how to like 
angle his camera correctly or do the captions. I like that feeling. Um, in fact, I realized after I started doing that, that, that I've been doing that my whole life. So like if you've ever played games like League of Legends, RuneScape, um, Dota, I always, and I didn't really think about it until like a month ago, I always would get really high level and do really well, get high rank. And then I would create a new character to start again from scratch. I didn't, I never liked staying at that high level because it got boring. And so I needed a new challenge. And so I'd start over and build back up just to be like, I can still do this. Like, I'm really good at this. And I did, and I've, I've had this like epiphany a while back where I was like, I just, I like building things and growing things from scratch and like making it successful. I don't know why. I just, I don't like reveling in success and building on my success for whatever reason. I don't know if that's a good thing, but I really like starting over and trying new things and sparking it. And so creatively, I didn't know I needed that, but I did. And now I kind of like understand myself a little bit better because of that. If you want to say it that way. (laughs) That's what the journey is all about is understanding yourself better. Well, you know, there's an interesting thing about all those examples you described is that you're starting from scratch, but you're not really starting from scratch. You know, you've played this game before. It's, it's fun to like, for example, when you do YouTube, right? There's stuff at the beginning that you do that you don't get to do towards the end. It's still like similar stuff. But you've been through it. You have the nostalgia of it. You really enjoy the, those processes. Otherwise, yeah. you wouldn't have gotten to the point where you don't need them anymore, right? And right. so it's it's fun to go back. I think TikTok is similar enough to YouTube or other content. We're like, oh, I have some of these skills. I understand some of this. But one, I get to go back. I get to refresh some of the basics. I get to learn some yeah. new derivative of this type of thing. And I'm not. You're not completely at ground zero. I think it's fine to start at ground zero. You'd probably enjoy that too. But it is a little bit fun to say, okay, can I take what I've learned and apply it to this new thing? That, exactly. That is such a fun job. And, you know, I've, I've done that a couple, you know, I've created the podcast channel, I have the clips channel, and I'm like, oh, I'm not as good as this as I remember being at it. <laughs> oh, crap, I got to work on that. But, like, you know, <laughs> even something as simple as creating titles and thumbnails for the, for the podcast clips and the, and the, um, shorts that I was doing for those, I got to go through and make 500 titles and really work on, Oh, what makes what's catchy? What's what creates tension? What's a hook. And on my YouTube channel, maybe do one a week. I got unbelievable reps at that. And I think I've been able to create a lot better things more recently, uh, in terms of titles and hooks and thumbnails because I just got more reps from starting over with very low consequences. You know, there's also yeah. that side of it too, right? Is, you know, yeah. you start making TikToks, you're a beginner, you can mess yeah. up and, and you don't ruin a lot of the stuff that you've built. Not that either of us <laughs> really care about that aside from maybe getting canceled yeah. for saying something really stupid, but um, <laughs> there, there is, it's always nice to be able to do things where you feel like, Oh, I have a safety net of being a beginner. Uh, why not try and experiment and like maybe mess up a couple times? That's that's like fun to do that. Yeah, no, it's a it's it is really fun. it's a good feeling. You know, you just you get a little bit energized by it. At least I it sounds like we both do. Yeah. So I see that's that's also my issue, but I don't always do those extra things well. Is that I'll be like I'm bored of this. I want to go back and do something else. I want to like start a podcast. <laughs> I want to do this, and I don't 
get past the hump in a lot of these things where, uh, you know, you, you, ha- you have to put in a certain amount of time to give them what I call terminal velocity where they can perpetuate on their own. And I think YouTube, yeah. I did that, but I took the foot mm-hmm. off the gas and I was like, okay, I want to do all this other stuff. And then all the other stuff, I was like, man, I don't like this as much as I like YouTube. Why am I doing these things? <laughs> um, and uh, for me, I'm currently yearning to just like hyper focus on something, to really go deep, to completely immerse in something. And I'm doing yeah. that more with YouTube. I'm really doing that with this podcast. I mean, I, I love talking to the guests, probably my favorite thing I do every week. And, you know, why not double down on the podcasting and, and the content again? Because it's what I've found that I, that I really enjoy. Um, absolutely. So I, I want to touch on two other things. The first is AI and your thoughts on the large language models, chat GPT. I know you've had a lot of posts, commentary saying that AI is not going to take our jobs. Uh, I'm wondering if you ever thought that it might take our jobs, uh, early in the process and how you arrived to this conclusion that, or maybe not conclusion, the speculation that like, Hey, this isn't as serious as a lot of people are thinking. <laughs> yeah. And, and I know that, you know, because we've had this kind of, you know, kind of a conversation on this offline. So where it was just you and I, and you know, that was, that was early of 2023 where AI was really gaining ground. It was released in November is really gaining ground and like, towards the end of 2022. And then in 2023, I was like, oh my gosh, it's really taking off. You know, I definitely had this ex, I don't, I don't know if it's an existential crisis. That is not the word to use, but like, I would compare it to that. Basically like I, there was so much I didn't know and so many things I was seeing online and my gut reaction was like, oh my gosh, if AI is half as good as I'm seeing on like these people's posts or YouTube, I was like, I'm out of a job like data data analysis, data science, uh, you know, you know, other careers as well in the data space, not, not uh, including a ton of others are just like obsolete. We won't need them. So, so for several weeks, I was just really down in the dumps. I was like, I, I feel like if everything they're saying is true, is true. Like it's just, it's not good for me, but even more so than that, I had a feeling like people at the higher levels would be okay, which was where I'm at. I felt bad for my audience because I was like, my audience is a lot of people trying to break into tech, break into data analytics, data science, and and all these things. That's who I was initially like, I was like, oh gosh, I was like, the people are just starting out right now. That's going to make it tougher. I feel like that's coming to fruition. Although... I still see a lot of, and actually, let me take a step back. I got out of that funk after I was like, I was like, I'm done speculating and being worried. I want to deep dive into this, like really dive in, test everything out, not just to make content on YouTube, which I eventually did, but also to be like, is this true or not? Like, are we really at this point in society where AI is going to take over everything and like, we're going to have a huge crisis on our hands. So I really started digging into it, articles, testing at different AI products, talking to experts in the field. After doing all of that, I really felt more at ease. 
as I got more hands-on with it, as I tested things, as I talked to these people, I was like, okay, let's see where it's at now. And let's see where it's going to be in three years, in five years, in 10 years. At the at the short end of the stick or the short time, I don't know how to say that, within the next right, three yeah. years, I see it just being a really good tool. And even for some use cases that I found, because I've been using it quite a bit in my actual work, I find it to where I'm like, I actually don't want to use this. It's not helpful. It's not giving me what I want. And it's making me more frustrated. And so there were parts of my work where I didn't like using it at all. And then I started talking to other people and they're like, yeah, that's the same. Like, I really don't like using it. It's actually making it harder for me to get my work done in some instances. Now, specifically with things like coding, it was definitely helping, especially with experienced people. But even then, I myself, when I'm getting to more complex things, it was it cannot, it would refuse to do what I asked it to do. Like, not just ChatGPT, I would try it on um, Bard, I would try it on Bing, I tried on Claude uh, 2, I was trying it on everything. It refused to do what I want. It was something pretty complex. And I was like, I would type out the best description I possibly could give give all the, you know, columns, everything it needed, everything it could possibly want, and it could not give it to me. It was so frustrating. I eventually just wrote it myself like some like some Neanderthal. And, you know, that process of really having to dig into it gave me a much better appreciation for AI and what it can do and what it can't do. And so for me, my outlook in the next three years is it's just going to be a tool. Um, for the next several years. It's a good tool, but there's a lot of things that I just don't like about it. But in like a professional setting, I'm like, I don't like how it does this. I really don't. I really like this part of it. So I use it for that part. But data analysis specifically, um, as you know, for data science, it's not just coding. It's a lot more than that. It's working with people, it's managing expectations, time management, critical thinking, figuring things out on your own before you code. And ChatGPT can help with those things um, in some ways. But there were different implementations that I knew were better based off of hands-on experience than what they were telling me to do. And I'm like, if I was a beginner and I trusted this completely, that would cost me thousands of dollars more per month to run that uh, at this scale. And I just knew that from experience. Or you know, doing this process or whatever it was. So my experience, I think, is going to be way more valuable in the future because of that hands-on experience that I've had without AI. And now with AI, I think I'm even more helpful. Um, so that's just within three years. In five to 10 years, that's really up in the air where it's going to be. But I still, I see AI being integrated more into companies that haven't used it. So I think there's a going to be a large, um, I think there's going to be a large new people getting into data that's never used data products at scale before that um, are going to need a lot of help. And they're going to really rely on um, people to come in and help them build that, maintain it, make sure it's giving correct outputs, all these things. And so I think the data space is actually going to explode quite a bit in like three to five years. I think to a level that we didn't, I, th I think people think now is like crazy tech data. I think 
in three to five years, we're going to be even more reliant, even more integrated with it, that it's going to be significantly larger than it is today. That's my take on it. That's what I think is going to happen. Um, so yeah, AI is like, it's it's really hard to say, but that's just, that's where I'm at at this point. Now, I am open to changing my mind. If I see, if I see things and hear things and you know, see data that's contrary to what I'm seeing, I am more than happy to change my opinion and be swayed by facts. That's just my intuition. And that's what my gut tells me right now. No, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. I, that is the most important thing, in my opinion, is saying, okay, let's try to look at this through it as an objective lens as possible. You know, I think where ChatGPT is right now, where Claude is right now, where all these models are right now, there's massive limitations to them doing really high level work. You know, I was trying to put together a state of analytics report, pulling together a lot of data, and I've been using ChatGPT a lot. It's helping, it's really good, but at the same time, there's errors that it runs into that I'm like, why is it getting this error? Why would it write code in that <laughs> way? And you know, still net positive for me, but the, the more complex the project is, the more difficulty it's going to have, the more sort of, I think, outside perspective, looking on how these pieces fit together outside of pure yeah. coding implementation, the more difficulty it's having right now. On the same time, I think that at the same time, I think that these models are going to incrementally get better. And there aren't enough iterations yet for us to say, oh, well, you know, GPT 3.5 to GPT 4 to GPT 4.5 to GPT 5, how much of an incremental boost is there? I mean, at least for me, the scariest moment was when we went from GPT 3 to GPT 4, because GPT 3 was pretty useless, in my opinion. And then GPT 4 was very, very useful. You know, I, mm -hmm. I would say GPT 3 was net neutral, it didn't save me any time. GPT-4 doubled my output probably. And then if GPT-5 doubles my output again, which it might, <laughs> who knows, and GPT-6 yeah. doubles the output again, we're looking at an exponential type of cycle. And exponential cycles are something that humans intuitively don't understand. And that's where any fear that I would have around this comes in. Is I, I don't think the technology right now is anywhere close to replacing our brains or replacing our, or, or largely replacing our work. I think the biggest concern yeah. is humans replacing other humans. You know, like if one person can do double the work of another person now, then a company will hire, or let's say they can do three X the work, then a company will hire two people and they'll get six times the work that they were getting before. Uh, right. And, and, you know, that's, that's the large concern that I have in the short term, but uh, the exponential exponential returns are what really scare me. But at the same time, I'm trying to be a realist about this and say, let's see what happens when the next model comes out. How much better am I getting? How yeah. much better are other people getting around? And if it's exponential, like we think it might be, or like I think it might be, yeah. that's a cause for concern. If it's linear, then I'm like, well, we'll, we'll be fine for 20 years pretty easily. Uh, well, I and, and I would agree with that because if it does get that much better, then that's pretty wild. My take on it is though, and from everything I've taught, everyone I've talked to who are much more better, know so much more about this than I do, is they're like, yeah, these models have gotten a lot better, but 
they're like, we think, and these are people who are like in this, who are actually like helping build these things. And they're like, we think we're we're going to hit sort of a a, a, a slope here. We're, we're having this huge up ramp, but we're going to start tapering off at some point until there's some new advancement in hardware specifically that allow us to take us further. And so they're like, we're training on, you know, 100 billion, 200 billion parameters. Well, we're not seeing that much different when we go to 300 billion, even though it's a hundred or a 50% increase in the size of the model. And so they're like, so there are different, once we figure out these different ways, we'll have improvements, but at, you know, will it be like you're saying, and what is a genuine concern, will it be exponential? That's the part where I think, I don't personally think it's going to get there at that speed. I see it more as it's, if it was just a software issue, we could get there quick. It would be exponential. But it's combined with hardware, and hardware is actually lagging quite a bit behind where the software could be. Um, and so we're they're running into a lot of issues where they're like, we think this could work in the future, but we need something that's way, 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 way more powerful. And that's where a lot of like the quantum computing comes in, where they're like, if we figure out quantum computing to this level and we integrate it with AI, all bets are off. And they're like, they could it could scale exponentially like you're talking about. But both of those things have to align and work together. And those things are improving. I just don't see those things having, getting done within like, you know, a couple of years and then it's like, boom, everything fits together. I see those things finish, like get done in five years. Then it takes years to integrate, implement, you know, figure the, fix the bugs. Then even, at, even then, like what you're talking about, companies have to integrate AI. Integrating AI into a company is not as a plug, plug and play. Yeah. It does take a lot of work, a lot of infrastructure being built up. And then on top of that, and I'm just gonna, I'm just keeping rambling. On top of that, I think a lot of these generalist AIs that we're using right now, all the ones that we just talked about, are really great. I don't think those ones are going to be the ones that all these companies are going to be using for a lot of their work. I think we're going to have specialty AI, AI models that are designed for finance, designed for this company, this company, this company. And they train on their inner, in, internal data. And that in and of itself takes a lot of work and a lot of infrastructure and a lot of um, you know people who have to actually build these things out. It would be... I, I find it really tough to imagine a world where we do this plug and play where it can plug into all of our data because that's not even currently possible now with almost any organization ever um, because data is so scattered and it's so siloed and there's so many issues. It's a human problem. As long as humans are involved, there are so many issues. So those are a lot of, the, I agree with you. If it goes exponential, it's insane, right? We can't, we can't predict where that's going to go. I could never say. I just don't see that happening. And I see so many other human factors that are in play. If AI was just by itself and could do everything, it was perfect and go into a company and just take over, maybe. I just, there's so many other factors and variables and historical issues that we've had for 40 years in tech or longer that have never been resolved and are still issues today. And unless somehow we, AI comes in and helps us solve those things, we're still gonna need people we're still going to need uh, uh, human intervention, I think even more so. So sorry to like just completely refute everything you said. That's not what I was trying to do. That's just my take on it. Like that's, no, no. that's what I see 
the the limitations and issues that I see, even short term, but also long term. Yeah, I you know I think that that's that's completely valid. I, I think that uh, human issues historically have been what is bottleneck technology. But on the other hand, I also think human issues are what are going to quote unquote solve AI. I mean, if you think about <laughs> all of the open source models that we have right now, you have Llama and you have implementations where people can train it on their laptop that are producing right. the same quality results as GPT-3. So to me, the open source nature of things that are forcing people to be more efficient with the algorithms are probably going to offset the need for compute, right? So if if all I of can us can that. run these things in, in this like very fast fashion, it's open source. These companies can swoop in and, you know, it's not a one-to-one match. They're, they're dealing with different, slightly right. different problems. But to me, that's, that's something I'm not saying that they're not going to run into that uh, compute hurdle. I think that that's a very real thing, but the way that I'm seeing the trend with open source and use of these models suggests that it's not an unsolvable problem with uh, like algorithmic efficiency and with like better methods of training these models. Um, From the company side, implementation, I think large companies, you're 100% right. They're going to have a nightmare trying to implement these things. I I wouldn't say the fear I have, but the expectation that I have is that new startups are going to start building infrastructure on top of these large language models using things like Langchain, using frameworks that are specifically designed to organize data on top of an API or one of these third-party models. And I think that those will move really fast. They'll be completely transformative. There are limitations. It's scary to build on a model that isn't yours, right? On OpenAI, (laughs) on on Google or whatever it might be. But the speed that they can move because they just have to curate their data and they don't have to really worry about the model as much, to me is something that is very possibly disruptive or like it could be very disruptive but we still haven't seen that play out necessarily so i'm biting my tongue on that a little bit because we really don't know if that's a feasible business model you know that's also something anyone can do like i i can build a chat app which i've done which just takes my youtube comments and responds to them like it's me right (laughs) i mean if i could do that what can companies do at scale with some of these frameworks and from some of these models so i i I, I won't say that I agree with you, but I won't say I disagree with you because neither of us haven't. <laughs> like the future is yeah. completely open. And that, that's like, to me, yeah. sort of the fun of, of this is that we can speculate. And, you know, why not speculate in a more optimistic way if neither of us can <laughs> control the future about these things? Like, while yeah. I do speculate, while I might have a, a slightly grimmer philosophy or like long term view of this than than you do. I wouldn't say that it changes my day-to-day life or the work that I do or anything. Maybe there's a little bit more sense of urgency where, hey, I'm you know yeah. saving to buy a farm or I'm I'm like, <laughs> but but you know that doesn't mean that I'm hiding in a shed. It means that okay, yeah. I want to be part of this conversation. I want to learn more. I right. want to I want to explore this. And I think that's essentially the the philosophy that is the healthiest. Is you know like the world's like. Hey, the world's not going to end tomorrow. Let's try to yeah. let's try to solve these problems or learn about these things together. And uh, that's one thing I really appreciate from you is you are always willing to have these conversations with me. Um, w- one last thing, let's talk about the analyst builder, dude. I I like 
was was going deep and I I almost forgot but something you've been absolutely <laughs> crushing for a while you've been stealing editing resources from me in the form of Tony <laughs> so like let me hear about it <laughs> yeah it's um you know it's funny you mentioned Forrest because he was the person I actually I he was the first person I talked to about it um it was it when we met up in Utah I was in person and I was like I just have this idea I was like, I've seen other companies uh, or, you know, other products like Leak Code where you have questions. I was like, but I also really want to make courses. And I really think I can make stuff better than what's out there. And that stemmed from that right after that happened, I was like, you know, I don't know if I can build it myself. Let me reach out to some companies that already have built something like that and see if they want to partner with me. And I can build my courses or, you know, help build their company and we would partner together. And so I reached out to like three, four, five of them and all of them were like, no, you know, we really appreciate, we love the stuff you do, but you know, it's not something we're interested in. I was like, that's fine. I totally get it. I, if I owned a company and somebody propositioned me for that, I would probably say no too, but I just wanted to see. And then I was like, why not build my own thing? And so, you know, this, we're about to do the beta launch of Analyst Builder and like, I don't know when you're, doing this, but as of today, which is September, am I allowed to say? Next Wednesday. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. This will come Uh, out. So as of September 7th, it's going to launch by the end of September. So within like two to three weeks, um, we're putting some final touches on it. And the beta launch just in and of itself is just really cool. And we built everything from scratch. I mean, 90% of it is code built from scratch. We didn't borrow an editor online. We didn't pay for an editor. We built our own editor because I wanted to control every aspect of this website and make it way better than what anyone else has. Now, this initial beta launch is simple. It's not meant to, it's not going to be compared to products that have been out there for five to 10 years. But what it is, is it's super fun. And I already have visions of what it's going to be in the future that I don't think any other company is going to be able to do. And so not just with that, but with the courses. So like I'm making courses and I have wanted to make courses for a while because people ask me all the time to do it. And I was like, I can just put them on Udemy. I could, you know, Coursera's asked me to make some courses for their project section and all these different things like in Unicademy and all these different places, but then I don't own them and I don't get to make them my own and keep them and use them. And I was like, I wanted a place where you could, and this is how I like learning, which is you you see a lesson and then you practice it. You see it, you practice it, then you build. That's how I learn. And that's how I felt. I feel like my community has learned through my YouTube channel. And so I'm like, let me just ramp that up. And now I've integrated the editor into the courses. So now you get to, you know, take the course, but while you're doing the course, you're practicing it and getting hands-on experience practicing these things and then building. And so it's really unique. It's there's other platforms that have bits and pieces of it, but not all in one place like what what mine is. Not only that is I just have so many ideas for the future. Like I have a list of 20 things that I'm sure I want to add. I'm already convinced each one of them will be on the website at some point. In each one of them I'm like that what no other website has that. No other website has that. And so I'm trying to create something really unique. The beta launch is going to be simple. Um, 
But in a year, it's going to be, in my opinion, one of the best websites to learn data analysis, to practice technical questions, um, and just several other things that we'll be adding. It'll be one of the best out there. Like we will be the standard. I genuinely believe that in a year. And so, um, yeah, it's going to be amazing. There's a wait list. We already have almost 5,000 people on it. Uh, and I've only posted about it once. So like, I, there's a lot of interest. There's a lot of people who want it. And I'm super excited to launch it because it's just going to be a great platform to learn data analytics and to practice for technical interviews. Um, and every single piece of content was made by me. Every thing you you see on that website is me, except for the designs, which were from a team and all the infrastructure I helped, you know, I worked with them. But every piece of content that you'll learn from is me. And so, again, it's kind of unique because you go to any other platform, it's six, seven, eight people of instructors. Um, and so if you like how I teach, then you're going to love Analyst Builder. It's, a, it's, it's as simple as that. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, Alex, that's, I think, a perfect <laughs> place to end on. I'm super excited for it. I'll have a link to the beta in the description if that's if that's doable, if that's okay. Um, yeah, just analystbuilder.com. Perfect, perfect. And Alex, <laughs> always a pleasure speaking with you. I had so much fun, uh, t- obviously, talking about AI, Analyst Builder, your journey from manager to, I guess, full-time YouTuber and Analyst Builder. builder. <laughs> um, yep. But again, thank you for the time, and I can't wait to get this one up. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Ken's Nearest Neighbors. Many of you have been asking about how you can support the show, and we're extremely grateful for all the engagement so far. The best way that you can show your support is to subscribe to both the Ken's Nearest Neighbors and the Ken's Nearest Neighbors Clips YouTube channels. If you're listening to us on Spotify or Apple Music, giving us a rating and sharing any of the episodes with someone that you believe might find the content useful is also greatly appreciated. The Ken's Nearest Neighbors podcast is hosted by me, Ken G, produced by Bobby Hicks, and is edited by Mario Paul and Tony Pellaridi.